Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is David W. Johnson, lecturer in law at Stanford Law School and lecturer in the Stanford School of Design. We will discuss his article, Designing Online Mediation, Does Just Add Tech Undermine Mediation's Own Most Aim?, which will be published in the FGV Dorito Sao Paulo Law Journal. So welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you, Brian, for inviting me. Yeah. So I, I, I was, I'm really excited to talk to you about this paper because I found it a really provocative way of thinking about mediation and how mediation is designed through the lens of design thinking rather than legal thinking, which is, I think, a lot more familiar to a lot of legal scholars and and lawyers. But before we start talking about that, I was wondering if for listeners who might not be that familiar with mediation or as you like to call it, mediated negotiation, what exactly is mediated negotiation and how is it different from other kinds of dispute resolution like litigation? Yeah. So uh, pretty much every negotiation book, mediation book, or ADR, alternative dispute resolution book, will have some sort of uh, diagram, uh, the ADR continuum, which uh, basically from left to right describes the options or possibilities of two people or two businesses or more than two people or businesses resolving a dispute on the far left of the continuum is effectively self-help or negotiation. And as you move to the right across the continuum, there's plenty of different tools or methods, but I'll mention a few. The the big ones would be uh, what I call, like you said, mediated negotiation or mediation, which is a method by which parties agree to have what they call a neutral Uh, and I'll come back to that phrase later, a neutral third party work with them to help them usually break an impasse and negotiate a resolution. Uh, Mediation is actually a big business, certainly out here in California uh, and across the country as well, more so in some states than others in large measure because of how the courts have adopted mediation as a dispute resolution mechanism Uh, in each of the different states. Some embrace it, some haven't. Uh, And then sliding to the right on the continuum, you move from mediation to, you can have expert neutral evaluation, which is a mechanism that emanates from the federal courts where the judge appoints an expert to receive submissions from uh, the parties and then deliver a report, a report, uh, on an opinion, basically an expert opinion on the party that has the better arguments. And sometimes that report goes just to the judge. Sometimes that report goes to the magistrate judge, uh, who's managing discovery. Sometimes that report goes to both of the parties is an effort to move the parties towards one another in settling the case past that. Then you get into arbitration which is private litigation. I think most of us are familiar with arbitration. Uh, There's several mechanisms for that. Uh, 
AAA, American Arbitration Association, runs arbitrations. JAMS is well known as having a stable of arbitrators, usually one, sometimes three, uh, oftentimes retired judges or senior people, almost always lawyers, who sit effectively as private judges and will listen to a case and decide it. And then past arbitration, you get into uh, litigation, which occurs in public courts and uses appointed judges with uh, official government powers to litigate uh, and and run trials and issue judgments and verdicts. Uh, Mediation back on the far left of that continuum is the first place where the two parties, the disputants, sometimes we refer to them as disputants, will bring a third party into the mix. And from left to right across that continuum, uh, there is more formality, less control, and the methodology tends to be more rights-based and less interest-based. Mediation fits in a sweet spot where the contentiousness and the cost still may not have risen to a point where it becomes burdensome and the parties can hopefully resolve their dispute without getting deeply into the system, for lack of a better phrase. Mm. Well, so what then are like the distinctive features of mediation as compared to other forms of dispute resolution because in in your paper you talk about mediation as in as I took it kind of as being sort of distinctive because of what it doesn't do or isn't intended to do mm. yeah so uh that's that's great follow up because uh mediation and this is something i think that clients oftentimes fail to understand unless it's really well explained to them by their lawyer mediators who run the mediation uh, do not and are not asked to uh, deliver a judgment or an opinion on right or wrong or who will win or who won't win uh, or even the morality of one position or the competing position of the parties. They are supposed to be and usually are agnostic about the the party's legal, moral, uh, your favorite term, ethical positions with respect to the dispute. The mediator's job is to facilitate the party's negotiation and their stated intention that they would like to resolve their dispute. Uh, And so mediation as a system, as a method, uh, is very intentionally not designed or expected to issue any sort of uh, result or judgment Uh, that works for mediation. Some clients find it very unsatisfying uh, because some clients want somebody in a position of authority to say that they are right. Uh, In fact, I'll digress here for a moment. One of the first trials I tried early in my career in Miami. Um, We were mid-trial and my client, who was the mother of a a 25-year-old, her 25-year-old son who was killed in a car crash, 
we were talking about whether to settle mid-trial. Uh, the defendants had come up with a better offer. And she said, no, I want to go forward. I don't care about the money. I just want somebody to say that Harvey's life meant something. And that's what she wanted. She wanted a jury to say that in one way, one form or another. It's really remarkable. It's, it gives me chills to even think about it 30 years later now. Uh, and thankfully, we got that result. So different clients are looking for different things. And mediation can uh, work when the issue is uh, commercial, particularly, or a one-off uh, settlement of a dispute, sometimes commercial, sometimes not commercial. I, I mean, it really struck me that it seems like part of the story you're telling in that part of the paper is how the mode of dispute resolution you, cho you choose has to be appropriate to the nature of the parties and the nature of the dispute. What's interesting about the different dispute resolution methods is not just that they provide different pathways and outcomes or possible outcomes for clients. What's more interesting to me is whether the lawyers realize, and usually there's lawyers representing clients in disputes, not always, but usually, uh, particularly when we get into arbitration, mediation, or litigation. I think there's a little bit of work to be done in the legal practice in deciding and understanding what the client really needs, what the client really wants, and fashioning a dispute resolution result that meets the client's needs rather than just working on the cookie cutter model that in my view, most litigators do, which is file the lawsuit if you're the plaintiff, defend the lawsuit if you're the defendant. Sooner or later, the judge or the opposing counsel is gonna say something about mediation, you're gonna to go to mediation. You're going to dig in your heels, hope to get a good deal. If that doesn't work, you're going to move forward in the litigation. And then you're going to continue to beat each over other, uh, beat, beat each, over each other over the head uh, for a while, spend some money, and then maybe talk settlement at the uh, insistence of the judge before you go to trial. It's such a cookie cutter process. I don't think anybody gives, thinks twice about what the client really wants. And unless the client is a lawyer themselves and has a deep understanding of both what they want and what the system can and can't give them, uh, which is common in commercial situations, but not common in most litigations, then the client is basically, uh, although they're supposed to be the one in control of their dispute and the resolution of their dispute, they're the last person that has any real control because they lack the understanding of how these systems work, either their design or how well they work, their function. Mm. Well, so in your paper, you're talking about online mediation and kind of almost like conceptualizing online mediation and what we think it can and should look like. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about 
online mediation kind of as a project? Like, what is it? What different kinds of online mediation might exist and how does it tend to be used? Online mediation is, I would say, in its infancy, but growing quickly. And there does not seem to be any consistency with how different mediators or different mediation uh, organizations or companies are going about it. Uh, Some mediators use a little bit of tech, which is to say, if you want to hire me as a mediation, here's what you need to do. You need to upload your relevant documents. You need to schedule time to jump on to a video conference. and the mediator tries to run the mediation online, probably in a Google chat, uh, in much the same way that they would uh, try to do it in the conference room. Then there are other uh, more specialized efforts. Uh, Modria is one of them, a company uh, founded by uh, Colin Rule, who is the guy who built this kind of infamous story, uh, built the dispute resolution mechanism for eBay, uh, quite successful, as a matter of fact, most of which was automated. Uh, And Modria is heavily automated. And so the question about uh, that I I pose about that kind of online mediation that is using some automation and has every intention of increasing the amount of automation, including but not limited to adding AI at some point downstream is whether or not mediation is going to get bent, reshaped, morphed, or transmogrified into something that it isn't now when it is conducted in real time, in real space. Uh, So there's, there's, in my view, this is my personal opinion, but in my view, based on what I've seen, uh, there's a lot of chaos uh, and there's no real guidance and there's no real regulation. And I would say probably as a result of no real thought about what it means to put mediation into virtual space, even though I accept that there is absolutely a need for increasing the accessibility of mediation uh, to disputants. So I, I don't oppose the idea. Uh, I challenge the methodology. I come from Silicon Valley, 25 plus years in the Valley, and I have come to see that many, many tech companies are basically engaging in a race to build it, build it fast, build it as easily as possible, and get it out there Uh, and grab market share as quickly as possible. And I just wonder whether the race to break down mediation into its component parts and then port it online is actually going to end up with the best online mediation deliverable. Mm. Well, so one of the things I really, really like about this paper is the way you talk about the role of design and design thinking in structuring dispute resolution mechanisms and really in a sense like institutions more broadly. So I wonder if for non-designer listeners, you could spend a minute 
just talking about what design is and how we should think about design in relation to our goals. And and in particular, there's a quote I really like that you put in the paper from Steve Jobs, where he mm-hmm. said, uh, design is how it works. Like, what does that mean? And how do you think that ought to inform the way we we think about design in this context? Yeah. So uh, Steve's quote was in response to some of the early products coming out of Apple that were quite clearly uh, sexy, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, And people were saying, oh, look at the design of the Apple products, the Mac, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, they look nice. And even the boxes, you'll remember that there was a point where they innovated they innovated boxes <laughs> that they shipped the products in. And now you see copycats doing the same thing, uh, which is fine. But he gave a talk and was really adamant that that's not the design. How it looks on the outside is aesthetics. And there is a design element to the aesthetics and the marketing of the product. But the design is how the product works. That's where the design lives. And I like that quote because I think it applies not just to products, but also to uh, what I call uh, non-physical systems or social systems. Um, And there's a couple of quotes from in the paper from the founders of the D-School. And one of the founders of the D-School is also a founder of IDEO, Uh, the design firm in Silicon Valley, uh, where they say that design thinking has grown up on products, but we see, and I agree with this wholeheartedly, we see a future for design thinking as applied to social systems. That includes institutions, uh, that includes uh, law, it includes uh, healthcare systems in my, my, uh, stretch target for the next coming couple of years is to look at a way of rethinking climate change treaties from a designer's point of view. Uh, so we're, we, we are, I think all of us embarking on this push to bring design thinking into what I call, what I personally, it's just my uh, handy way of thinking about it, non-physical products, non-physical things, such as social systems. Um, So I picked on mediation this time around and looked at mediation as a system of communication that uh, by all accounts is thousands of years old uh, and has developed a deep set of norms and standards, uh, uh, culture, cultural specific, culturally specific norms and standards as well. Um, and the designer's point of view, to look at a system like that and think about redesigning it for uh, online use, the designer's first mandate uh, and is to look at the end user and the needs of the end user and try and figure out how the end user's needs are best met 
by whatever product or service or system the designer is thinking about working with. And so the question I pose for those people who are building online mediation systems is, are they truly thinking about the end user's objectives as opposed to simply putting mediation online so they can develop throughput to generate revenue? Mm. Well, so I wonder if you could spend just a moment sort of reflecting on how design thinking should or could inform our understanding of systems of mediated negotiation kind of writ large, right? Because it seems like, you know, as you were suggesting, on one level, they seem to have kind of developed organically over the period of many thousands of years. But in other respects, there's sort of elements of intentional construction, as well. I mean, like, you know, we've had mediated negotiation for a long time, but we also create particular mediated negotiation systems. Like, how do you think design thinking can and has informed the ways we go about doing that kind of activity today? Um, working backwards, I'm not so sure that a whole lot of design thinking has been applied to mediation to date. Uh, I think it would be an interesting product project to sit down with a group of designers and think about mediation as it exists now, forgetting the online component and just uh, making what we call a design challenge. How uh, We use the phrase, how might we? How might we improve the quality, improve the way mediation works, to use Steve's phrase, uh, in its normal current habitat, which is uh, the parties with lawyers usually go to a conference room uh, at the mediator's office and go through a process of uh, presenting their mat their case, going into breakout rooms, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, th I would think that uh, the first thing that the design thinking approach would uh, focus on is interviewing clients who have been through mediation, trying to understand what they were looking for, what they understood, what they didn't understand, their level of satisfaction, uh, what, whether their needs were met, what sorts of things they could do differently. We call that ethnographic interviewing of the end user. But also, interestingly, the lawyers are also participants, are, are stakeholders in the mediation process. So I'd also want to look at that and try and uh, with some, uh, it's funny to use the word empathy and lawyers in the same sentence, but with some empathy, try and understand really what the lawyers are trying to accomplish. Uh, and some lawyers are trying to accomplish higher profits. Uh, classic being the plaintiff's contingency lawyer who wants to file the lawsuit, spend as little time as possible getting the case to mediation, get the insurance company uh, representative into the mediation room, shake them down for as much money as possible, convince the client to take the money, uh, close the case, and then move on. Uh, that has to be understood by the designer. We don't necessarily like it. We may disagree with it morally as the approach, but that doesn't change the fact that it's an element 
of the mediation process as it exists now and uh, undertaking a redesign for improvement has to take that kind of thing into account. And then lastly, you not maybe not lastly, but next I would look uh, at mediators. Uh, I've been in enough mediations to know that mediators come in uh, a wide array of what I will call types. Number one, there's six or eight different definitions for types of mediators from facilitative to evaluative to uh, relationship building. Uh, there's a laundry list of the types out there and every mediator comes at it somewhat differently. But I also, again, want to find out what, what, what drives the mediator. Some mediators really genuinely have a passion for their work and they really believe that they're doing a good service in spending their time helping people arrive at a resolution that feels good as well as is one that they can say yes to. Uh, these are the kinds of mediators who oftentimes try and get parties to uh, speak to one another, apologize to one another, try and really bury the hatchet and get some emotional health uh, from the result as well as an assigned piece of paper. And then there are others who uh, I was involved in a mediation once where the mediator literally blocked the door of one of the parties who was trying to leave until he agreed to say yes to a $30 million settlement deal. And he got the party to agree to the $30 million settlement deal. That guy got to his private jet, flew home, oddly enough, <laughs> to Kentucky and talked to his wife. And the next morning, his wife made him call back and say, uh, I'm backing out of the deal. So there are some mediators who play hardball. Again, the designer's approach has to be to take all of these types of uh, variables into account and think through how they can make improvements in the system, in the process and the rule sets around the system for uh, improvement of the process. The first thing that's coming to mind right now that seems obvious now that I've reflected on it is uh, clients need to have a much better understanding of the type of mediator they're going to get involved with. And the lawyer has to do a really good job of selecting the mediator that's going to fit the needs of the client uh, and has to put that decision in front of their commercial interests. Much in the same way one might say in today's political world, some people might should put country over party. So there's there's lots of tensions and lots of competing motivations in the several uh, sets of actors and stakeholders in mediation now. So for me, the design thinking approach is going to focus on uh, a deep dive into the human-centered component, what everybody's trying, each of the players is trying to get out of a mediation, find some alignment uh, across those needs, and perhaps develop several different literally several different types, models, or labels of models of mediation so that people have a better understanding of what they're getting into. Because right now it's kind of a one-size-fits-all black box that you throw everybody in, shake it up, and see what comes out.
Well, so specifically when it comes to online mediation, do you see any potential like opportunities or hazards that design thinking might help us identify and think about how to resolve? Yeah, I think the opportunity, having said what I just said, the opportunity may be that the technology, if it's well-designed, could actually help people make these uh, cuts, make these decisions. So if I'm somebody or I, if, if my client is somebody who really needs to hear an apology and feel like they have emotional satisfaction as much as financial satisfaction, then I might want to go to not just a particular mediator, but I might want to go to a particular online mediation provider whose technology is set up to move in that direction. Uh, if the, it may be that the, there are enough modular tools in the online scenario uh, where options exist. So for example, there's one company that has already built their own platform. It's out in India. It's in a beta right now has built their own platform where the parties can in real time have ongoing private chats with the mediator while the mediator is in the group chat with both parties. So you could have a scenario where the mediator is, quote, in the room, in the virtual room with all of the disputants and at the same time is running private chats in separate rooms with all of the disputants. Now, this is something you physically cannot do in the conference room in the office of the mediator. You have to do the uh, hallway diplomacy, go down the hall, talk to them, come down the hall, talk to the other, talk to me, go back down the hall and talk to them again. But the advantage of being able to hear from in almost immediate uh, cycles from all parties commenting about what they're hearing, what they like, what they don't like, is a is one example of how the technology can actually improve the mediator's ability to move the parties uh, in a direction that's going to get them uh, not to, not just towards a resolution, but a satisfying resolution. Uh, so the, the the advantage of the technology is that it might be, if it's well designed it might have a better fit for different clients' needs. Mm. Are, there, are there potential risks or potential things that you think we might ought to be concerned about? Yeah. And I alluded to one of them, which is one of the drivers, and this is sort of an individual uh, driver, but some of the people who are interested in online mediation see it simply as a way of making more money because they can handle more cases and they can do it with lower overhead and they can move clients through mediations online because they can do it asynchronously. So they can have several mediations going on at the same time and feel like they can still do the work that they need to do in order to get the cases resolved. But I think that is a motivation that has the, has a risk of uh, not putting the, client's interests because the mediator is being paid by the disputants, putting the client's interests 
although they, they, they are not technically clients of the mediator, they are the ones paying the mediator for their service, uh, putting the disputant's interests uh, in front of their own. I think there's a risk of, uh, how shall I say, shuffling the professional responsibility deck and dealing the cards out again and us having to sit down and think about what the professional responsibilities this is going to be right up your alley, Brian. How, what the professional responsibility rules should be for mediators online, should be for lawyers uh, representing clients in mediations online. Uh, if the technology is such that it reconfigures or, re, or, or re-incentivizes parties in a way that's different than the way they are currently incentivized. So yes, there's risks there. I think there's also risks of lay people going into uh, online mediation without a lawyer because they can't afford it. They don't want to try to afford it. One of the reasons they're drawn to online mediation is because it's less expensive and they think they can do it themselves. In some instances they can, but they're not going to get sufficient information or support about how to do it. Uh, I think there's a lacuna in the system right now of informing the client, the disputant, the user of the things that they need to know before they undertake uh, the mediation. Because bear in mind, a mediation is going to result in a binding contract and binding contract, perhaps for quite a bit of money and most people who are going to do a binding contract for quite a bit of money will usually get a lawyer. So in this instance, they may think that the mediator has their best interests at heart when they are presented with a deal. But in fact, the mediator's job is expressly not representing the, any one of the disputants. It's just trying to move them to a deal. So there's danger there as well. Mm. Well, so Dave, in, in closing, uh, you know, it's pretty unusual to have people who are teaching both in a law school and in a design school. And I, I was wondering if you use design thinking as a tool in your law teaching, and if so, how and why and how do you find it effective? So for the last four years, the course I've taught at the School of Design, which we call the D-School, has been uh, negotiation by design, which is the uh, application of certain design thinking elements or skills uh, specific to negotiation. Uh, We get graduate students. The D-School is really set up for grad students at the university. We get graduate students from virtually every school in the uh, university. Uh, In fact, we get more applicants from MBA than we do from law school. Uh, And a prerequisite is for them to have negotiation already under their belt, a negotiation class under their belt so that they have a a baseline. And the objective here is to present what we call uh, the design abilities. There's currently a list of eight, maybe some people say 10 design abilities. The ones that I focus on are uh, managing uncertainty, uh, empathetic communications, 
I'm going working off the top of my head. There's one other that's not coming to mind. And we really drill down on these uh, particular design thinking abilities and apply them over to negotiation. Now, taking a step back from that course, uh, when I did my uh, JSM at Stanford years ago, uh, I was thinking more about what I alluded to at the beginning, which was the design of social systems. The idea that uh, lawmaking, decision-making, policy-making is done in a way that's more haphazard, uh, sort of like layering more software code on top of a a code base instead of uh, trying to excise the rule sets that aren't working and replace them with uh, code sets that will work because all code has to be uh, amended and upgraded, Uh, which is why I'm a big fan of moving from the old school of software design to object modeling and modularity. Uh, So my thinking going forward is going to be looking at law uh, as a designer using the model of modular software Uh, and trying to, how shall I say, uh, propose policy or policy amendments that are expressly uh, designed to be replaceable and to be replaceable without upsetting other parts of the policy system. Uh, because the modules are plug and play. And if a rule set in a module stops working or is substandard, you can pull that rule set, amend it, plug it back in, uh, much like you would with software, and not upset the overall system. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Dave. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
Messing with my head, you got me too. 